Welcome, everybody, for another Hollywood Godfather podcast. And tonight we have a surprise guest and author. And uh, I like the, I don't even know him yet, but I know en- enough about him. Uh, I like people who c- can stay above the law while breaking the law, as I did and he has done. And Pat's the only guy that's in the law trying to catch us. But anyway, Patrick, my co-author, Piccarelli, is here with me. And host of the show. And Good evening, everybody. Well, why don't you introduce our illustrious guest tonight? <laughs> well, as you know, for uh, quite a long time now, Johnny, I've been looking for somebody as notorious and charismatic as you are <laughs> to come on the show. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I saw uh, an extensive article in the New York Post featuring our guest tonight. Uh, he has written a book. His name is uh, Eric Kenori, and The book he wrote uh, is entitled Pressure. And it's about his life in the uh, illegal marijuana trade. Now, this type story has been told before, but nothing like this. Uh, he was a, a single operator with a huge and I mean a huge operation. The book is fascinating, by the way. And for those of you who uh, want to take a look at it, here's the book. Here's our guest. Great cover, too. Yeah, nice cover. You we'll photographed very well, Eric. <laughs> Thank you, Gianni. Somebody told me yesterday to change it, so this is a good... Why? Good compliment. I don't know. She just said you could do better. Oh, she? Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah. she knows you more intimately than we do. <laughs> uh, okay. You know, what what the, type uh, of picture does she want? <laughs> she saw some. Yeah, that's a good question. The, the, proof, the proof in changing pictures is in the sales of the book. You know, they want to know what's what's inside. And I tell you, this this story captivated me to the point where I uh, went to Eric's uh, website, sent him an email, contacted him. We talked for a while. I invited him on the show. Uh, we normally don't do this. We have people asking us to come on. And, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll try to pick fascinating guests. And obviously, we have one here. Uh, Eric's rise to fame at a, uh, or infamy, I should say, at a young age was phenomenal. I mean, I've been in the law enforcement business for a long time. And reading this is, uh, is absolutely fascinating. How he organized a huge business on his own, how he kept his humanity, and how he realized... Uh, that perhaps he wasn't in the right business. Now, one of the things I liked about the book, me being a, uh, an author, I've been writing most of my life, is that if this isn't your typical book, I did this, I did that, pat me on the back, have a nice day, the end. He, he, he realizes and projects to the, to the reader uh, his innermost thoughts about his triumphs and his mistakes and uh, why he got out of the game. So at that, uh, folks, I give you Eric Canori. How you doing, Eric? Great. Thank you for having me on, Patrick. Thank you, Gianni. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, where do we start? Well, uh, from the beginning. Thought <laughs> it out. Uh, you, obviously, you're a very bright guy. I mean, the, the book speaks volumes of that. Uh, how did you get started in his business, uh, and what made you start? When you're in a position where you don't know where you're going to get your next food where you're going to sleep that night, you'll do anything to survive. And for me, I wasn't selling weed because I wanted new rims, new girlfriend, fancy car. It was really about survival, finding a safe place to sleep and a safe place to eat. How old were you, if you don't mind me asking? uh, I started selling when I was 16, but I sold candy before then. I had a paper route, like mowed lawns, shoveled driveways, but... Once I tasted weed, weed was a good way to cover my pain, too, and prevent me from having real conversations about my truth. And um, so I smoked a lot of weed, but I couldn't afford it. So I ended up having to start selling it. So I sold a small amount in high school. And then when I went to college, I really expanded the business to where I had uh, different distributors in each part of the town. I was in Plattsburgh State University, upstate New York. 
and I started my business there and I really grew it where I was doing, I did over a million dollars in sales by the time I graduated with my bachelor's degree. I had a few people wear wires on me, but they never had enough on me to do anything. I knew they were wearing wires. Uh, I ran this op. I was a slick. They nicknamed me Slick the DA, but I was kind of small back then. They didn't watch me. And then I graduated college. I moved to Saratoga Springs, New York. And that's really where I set up and expanded the business where I was. Uh, I know I became that. One- I know that neighborhood well, too. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's quiet. Good place. Well, that's to probably where you get, get away with it. It's very quiet. Yeah, nobody's yeah, well, doing anything that, wrong. You know, that would be my next question. Why go to Saratoga Springs? Why not go to a big city? It seems like that, that would be the right thing to do. Well, too much I, I needed to be. I needed to be within a couple within a couple hours of the Canadian border because most of the product I was smuggling over the border was coming out of Vancouver and Quebec. Oh wow! And you discussed. Uh, well, you, you just said something about masking your feelings. Uh, marijuana helped you with that. From what? What kind of uh, childhood did you lead? Did just. You- well, as children, if you don't have the newest sneakers and the newest backpack, you're not noticed or accepted by the cool group. And I always felt inadequate and insecure and I didn't fit in. And uh, everybody would have laughs and jokes and things to talk about that they did on the weekends. And I had nothing to talk about because I didn't have much money and I was always grounded. And I went through a lot of other things, specifically abuse. Right. It was very difficult. I don't, I'm embarrassed to get into too much of that. It's really detailed in the book. But uh you know, so I come to Saratoga and it's a quiet town and that's where I really set up the hub for my operation where I was able to distribute weed in every single state of the East Coast between New Orleans and Boston. Wow. Okay, well, hold on right there. How did you get big so quickly? What was your organizational structure? I mean, you're a lone operator here. How do you keep a handle on all this? Well, I was the head, but I have people, I have certain people that store money for me, certain people that store product, certain, I have drivers that handle different territories. A driver might handle New England. I might have another one that handles New Orleans, the Carolinas. Um, How did you gain their never, trust though? Uh, just started as a kid when I was 15, smoking bowls with people, having good last beer. When people see you in rear forms, you know, I used to party really hard. You build trust over, over a lot of partying and, uh, 99% of the people I trusted that I worked with, I only worked, I, I did it slow and organically. I only brought people in that I trust. I didn't work with just anybody. My business could have been much bigger, but what made my business so unique is I was a ghost because I grew it slow and steady. Wow. My private investigator, he's a, his partner is the former assistant deputy director of the FBI of the United States. And, uh, he said he's never seen anybody that's gotten to my level in the game without the government knowing or a gun. So there's cartel guys bigger than me and stuff, but everybody knows who they are and they have informants within their organizations tracking money and power. Me, on the other hand, I was a ghost. Nobody was in my organization. I was doing over 60, well, not over, around 60 million a year in sales in my height. Wow. And how many years did that last? My run was about 12 years. I did well over 300 million in my run in sales. Uh, that's a conservative number, wholesale number. Could even be higher if a prosecutor got a hold of it, you know, and they put the retail street value on it, you know? <laughs> what, uh, 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 to, to give the listeners a, a, an idea of the weight, I mean, you know, there's $300 million, that's an awful lot of money. What does that translate to? What, well, what back, back to yeah, back then, back then, the, the weed prices were much higher because the market wasn't as saturated. We're looking at the early 2000, 2007, 8, 9. For a thousand pounds of high end indoor, you could pay anywhere from $3 million to $4 million if it's really grade AAA bud. Wow. And you were paying, you were paying that amount of, per shipment? Um, not all my shipments. Usually they were smaller. My shipments were usually a million a piece, but I had shipments up there where like the day I got arrested, I had $4 million worth of product coming in through three different suppliers. Well, let's get, let's get prior to that. So you're slowly building this organization and you had people that you trusted people that were with you for years. How do you set up a coast to coast distribution network And your, how, how old were you? By the time you hit it, yeah, big. that's another thing that's really unique. I did this all in my 20s. By age 29, I had done all this business from age 
17 to 29, I did it all without a gun or the government ever knowing I existed. Like I said, they were, I had, they had, they watched me for a couple of weeks in Plattsburgh, but I was too small. Like they watched me in college, had a couple of kids wear wires on me, but I created a couple false trails and they, they stopped following me. It's too expensive to follow a little guy. Um, so how'd I do it? I did it with my third eye, man. Gut instincts, man. You have to be able to look at somebody and see an aura around them. Like I can see people's glows and basically I can assess whether they're going to fold under pressure. I can assess whether they're going to come through. I can assess whether they're going to pay on time, whether they're going to fuck me. I was really good judge of character because I've been through a lot. Like I've sat at the table with the elites at the top and I've sat at the bottom with the people in the trailer parks that don't even have running water. So by seeing a wide variety of people, I know how to assess people's, uh, uh, what's the term, trustworthiness. Yeah, well, you obviously did a great job. I mean, I think, I mean, I don't know much about that business, but uh, I've, I've had run-ins with everybody in the world. I mean, me being 80 years old, you can only imagine. But I, I don't, I mean, I, in your distribution, how did you set that up? If you're buying that yeah. many pounds, that's insane. Yeah, he had, you know, the, the book, I tell you, I read the book in about three days. I mean, uh, it's fascinating. How do you set up at, at, at that age a coast-to-coast successful distribution of trailer, tractor-trailer loads of weed? How do you do that? Well, it didn't start with tractor-trailers. It started first with, like, I would take a Chevy 1500 pickup truck and we would jack it up and make it look like a Chevy 2500 pickup truck. And we could fit a hundred pounds in a false compartment in the bed of the truck, all with hydraulics. We could retrofit that truck for like 30 grand. So it started with smaller trucks right when I got out of college and then it escalated to where then we would need an 18 wheeler, depending on which distributor I was working with. And sometimes they stuff it in mattresses, they bring it over the border um, some people used fruit trucks. Um, now this wasn't like, I wasn't just using 18 wheelers. There's some people that just run smaller loads, but they do them back to back. Like they'll run 200, lo- 200 pounds one day and then 200 pounds later that evening, because you're, if you're caught with under hundred kilos, it's not considered a, a federal offense for cannabis back in the day, at least. So Depends on who you're working with. Some people like to do more frequent runs. Some people like to do big runs. But I wasn't doing coast to coast. I only tapped into California in 2009 when they really started saturating the market. Uh, Mostly it was coming out of uh, Canada, Quebec and Vancouver. These these distributors contacted you or you found them? Uh, No, it's, it's a combination of both. I just had a good name on the street. It's not, it's not complicated. Most of the stuff I learned in college didn't serve me well. It's really about showing up on time, keeping your word, under-promising and over-delivering. Um, just those simple things and, and always putting the customer ahead of yourself, right? Like I was last. I, I slept on a mattress who knows where most nights. I had different stash houses around the country. I'd work till I couldn't work and I just pass out on one of my mattresses at one of my houses. And, but I always put the customer first. I wanted them to be happy. So if they had a problem, there was sometimes I would take losses on the loads just to keep them happy. So they come back. Okay. I was in law enforcement for a long time. And, uh, you know, uh, granted, the uh, weed has less of a violent connotation to it. But in my experience, there's still violence there. It's, it's either an undercurrent of it or it eventually explodes into violence. How did you avoid? The violence. That was another thing with gut intuition. If you read and you know, you probably saw in my book, there was a time when I could have went up to the Indian reservation to get a load, but he, he was, he, my guy was playing me kind of like, Hey, I have buyers that'll pay more than you. And I said, well, that's all I'm going to pay. And lo and behold, those buyers went up, they were filed by the DEA. There ended up being a shootout at the deal. They tried to rob him for a half million DA ran in. My guy took off on a four wheeler. He got away. It's kind of like the wild west up there. So there's there's violence around, but nobody's gonna nobody wants me dead because I'm the I'm the cash guy, right? I make everybody rich. Who the yeah. nobody get rid of me? The whole everything everybody falls apart. So there's no reason to nothing I had to worry about. Without me reading the book, did you do any time? Yeah, I did uh, a little less than two years, but uh, 
I really mitigated my sentence because they wanted me to work undercover initially and I wouldn't do it. And uh, so I hired a really high end attorney, Michael Kennedy out of Manhattan. He'd done. The you know, I was going to I was going to uh, mention that to you. I did some work with Michael Kennedy as a private investigator. He represented the Trumps. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go any further than that, but he was a uh, he was an odd guy. Uh, to say, is, is, is he, is he not still practicing? He passed he? away. He passed away. Okay. Yeah. He uh, he introduced me to uh, uh, Trump's first wife at the time she was looking for a divorce. Yeah. And I, I already had an experience working for Donald Trump, and I wasn't about to take a second case. So I I, I, I just walked out of the meeting. He wasn't happy with me. He never called me again. But I liked yeah. the guy. Yeah. I liked yeah. Him he, was, he was. He was. Pretty yeah, good. He was a heavy hitter back then, but uh, yeah, I hired I heard him and his private investigator. I put together a dream team really to fight this thing to trial, and then I was rearrested a second time for laundering money to pay my legal fees. Um, I didn't. They froze all my bank accounts, all my assets, all my equities, so there was no way for me to uh, pay my legal fees without laundering cash. And I was came to my bill was close to seven hundred grand. This was before trial, and uh, I got rearrested. Threw me back in jail. This time, no bail. Still oh, wow. wanted me to work undercover. I wouldn't do it. Well, that's what they were trying to get you on. Obviously. Yeah, they just wanted. They just wanted. They'll squeeze you until you get the help. You yeah, help and they, well, they squeezed me all right. And eventually, after several months, my lawyer comes to me. He's like, "Hey, Eric, if you give them the rest of your money, they'll let you go. They know you're a good kid." I had no before pride. We get to that, before we get to that, we don't want to get to the end. We don't want to say too much uh, about the book. Your lifestyle obviously uh, increased. Uh, tell our listeners how you were living. I was living like a king, like a rock star. Anything I wanted of a push of a button. I never had to look at price tags. I could roll up to any five-star hotel. I took it. Everybody got tipped in hundreds. Bellman, they all knew my name. Didn't Whether it was the Mandarin, the Four Seasons, the Pierre. Um, and any city I went to, I always stayed at the finest. The White Glove Service and... For me, it was about working hard, making money, and then at the end of the day, finding the the most beautiful escort I could find, VIP service, have her come to my room, scratch my back, tell me I'm handsome, and that's it. You know, that was kind of my grind, eat food, work, sleep, and women. Until you reached the point where you actually wanted a relationship. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't too good with women in my youth. I was really insecure. I was shy. I felt inadequate. And money created a. What money did for me, it was like a, it was like, like what a makeup does for a woman. Money was my makeup, and my fat wallet is really what drew women to me. Just like uh, women's lip gloss draws some men to them. So um, that's yeah. great. I mean, it Once, sounds like a perfect life to me. <laughs> man, <laughs> let me tell you, man. A lot of beautiful women. I've definitely. Without all the women I've met in my life, I wouldn't be who I am. A lot of these women turn me from a boy into a man, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, they'll do that. It, yeah. reached the, there came a time with all the, with all the money, with all the traveling, with, with, with all the bling, with everything else. You started to get a little disillusioned. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was drowning in the money after a while. I, I remember there were... <laughs> yeah, yo, it, 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 you know, I'm a lot happier now. I don't make as much, but at least I'm, uh, yeah, I had so much, I had so much cash. There were times I remember specifically going to do my laundry. I'd open up the dryer and there was a duffel bag in the way where I was going to do, man, there was over a million bucks in cash. Totally forgot. Somebody even put it in there like a few days ago. I just had cash in all different places at all times. And uh, I always just had wads of hundreds in my pockets and I greased everybody overpaid everybody to do the little things go get me some groceries throw somebody a couple grand who knows and do this give me some give me some cell phones you know but i was very giving i didn't really have a lot of possessions of my own that's another thing that kept me undercover like i bought assets like legitimately because i had legitimate businesses too i bought properties but i didn't have a flashy car or anything like that so that allowed me to i like to rent nice cars when i was out of town but uh so back 
wait, oh, the money. Yeah. How did I drown in the money, man? It's yeah. very easy. You see it all day, man. I, I wasn't eating right. I'd, sometimes I'd eat gas station food. I had I didn't know the basics of life. OK, like I wasn't taught in school. Be grateful for what you have. Remember to breathe between your deals. Like I had I had 14 cell phones at one point, PGP encrypted Blackberries with our own servers. They couldn't even open them after they seized them. Some of them. The PGP encrypted ones. I had so many different alerts and dings before smartphones even existed that my brain was like. What kind of stress is this? uh, It's it's a lot of stress. It's stress, too, because you're not only running a Fortune 500 company, you also have to constantly cover your tracks and look over your shoulder and wonder who's wearing a wire. You interesting. uh, in, in addition to cash in the book, you discuss. Uh, gold. Tell us a little bit about the gold. I spent a lot of years burying cash. Uh, Other than being very heavy, I know a lot about gold. (laughs) It's it's actually, it's actually, um, trying to figure out if it was heavier than cash, but anyway. When did you stop buying gold? What year? Oh, seven, I think. Oh, eight, maybe. Oh, oh, you're way up there. I was yeah. buying it in the 60s and 70s at $365 an ounce. Wow. I used to ship my Bentley in a container to Monaco every April for three months. When it left, and Pat knows this, the hubcaps, the, the, even the, every part of my engine was all gold, gold-plated. And then when they brought it over there... It came back in chrome. Every year I moved I, I moved so much gold and nobody knew what the fuck I was doing just because I had this container that everybody loved this container. My, my, I, mean, I put my car in the container, went, on the, went across six and a half days. I'd take it back down. I, I, move, I mean, well, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm saying to myself, like you, I had so, many, I had so much cash. I, I, I put window boxes in my apartment in New York and put a million dollars in each one and put plants over them because I couldn't put money anymore. Where, I didn't know where yeah. else to put it without everybody yes. being alarmed by so much cash. That's the problem with it. Eric, this gold was a big point of contention when it came to your freedom. Yeah, so I started buying gold because when I'd bury cash in the mountains, sometimes it would get moldy no matter how well I triple sealed it. So I started buying gold and burying it and saving it for a rainy day, whether it was retirement or to buy my way out of prison or whatever it needed to be. It's just my safety net. Everybody has one or tries to have one. So mine was gold. Mine was gold. So uh, when you started to uh, negotiate with the feds, uh, specifically the, uh, the, the DEA, that one agent, I forgot his name, he was after your gold. You gave up one load. And there was a bit of contention about the other one, which he finally got. But, uh, I, you know, obviously, he's the DEA. You aren't going to trust the guy. But uh, it, it seems like you became friends begrudgingly, correct? Yeah, after a few years, him chasing me, he knew more about me probably than my girlfriend. So he uh, he... He didn't know I had gold. He just knew my net worth was up there. He knew I had a high net worth and he wanted to get at that and he wanted awards. So he chased me for a long time. I was the top top of his priority. I should say I was his main priority. So special agent Ronald Arp was the head of the case. He's passed away since, but uh, he was really good at what he did. And um, we went to war for a long time, me and him and, uh, we made a deal where I would pay $5 million or $4.75 million. After I agreed not to work undercover, finally they came to me and said, hey, if you give us the rest of your money, we'll let you get on with your life. And uh, the deal was for $4.75 million. If I paid up, that was part of my plea agreement. So I did that. I, I went out in shackles. I was escorted out of my jail cell by over 20 DEA ATF agents into the woods of upstate New York. And um, they were all armed. They had walkie-talkie headsets, AR-15s, I think they were. Um, is that maybe AR-15? Anyway, and uh, 
they because they didn't know if I was leading them to an ambush or if I was trying to escape. They didn't know anything. So they had to take all precautions. But we went in the woods and uh, the first cache I dug up to fulfill the four point seven five million was uh, a couple million dollars worth of gold bars buried three feet down into the earth. Dug that up, gave it to him, and I paid off the deal. That combination of that two million and they're already two point. I think they already had about 2.75 million that they had seized out of my house in cash. So with the gold and the cash, I fulfilled my end of the deal for 4.75 and they threw me back in jail. How Paid did they, up. How did they and come they up put with you back in jail? Point? Yeah, they put me back in jail. They're like, now you got to wait for the judge to let you out. And then we had to have a little proffer session. You know, I had to basically say what I did in the game because I agreed that I would say what I did. Like I pled guilty. My lawyer is basically like, you don't have to work undercover. You don't have to tell them everything. You just can't lie. So I basically sat down in a proffer session and this goes really deep in the book. I'm like summing this up hardcore. Like basically what I did has never been done probably in the history of the United States was maybe, maybe in Roman times, but has anybody approached you to make a movie of this? Not yet. I mean, I've I've had emails with guys that do documentaries for Netflix and stuff, but oh, I haven't replied. I, I, yeah, I'm looking for a heavy hitter. I know what I'm sitting on right now, and this is a gem. So, oh yeah. Anyway, they put me back in jail, and they were digging for more. I could tell that wasn't enough money. They, I felt I had a feeling that they wanted me to still. Ron specifically wanted me to do anything to get more, more, more money, more bus, more connect something, and. um well, yeah, I didn't give big... it to him. I didn't give it to him. But what I did give him after a few weeks of sitting back in my jail cell, I went out in shackles and dug up close to another six million dollars in gold bars. Three weeks later, gave him that, and I said, "That's everything." And they let me out. It's time to let me out. I'm summing it up. It's detailed in the book, and they did. I went to stand in front of the judge, gave them close to twelve million dollars in gold and cash. And they let me out of jail. And and here I am. I actually did get sentenced to 30 months. I went and did a couple, little less than a couple of years down in FMC Devons. Wasn't bad. Honestly, I didn't mind it. It was just the food. The food was bad. There was there's no nutrients there. But the alone time was good because it helped me reset, recalibrate, find my purpose and in what, life. What, what be... age are you now when you're doing all this? Uh, 32. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay, uh, Eric, that book that you uh, uh, mentioned in your book that you read that helped turn your life around. I forget the name of it. I looked it up, though. I'm impressed. Uh, give our listeners the name of that book. Okay, yeah. So when I was sitting in my prison cell, the, the book that helped me negotiate the deal with the government is called The Master Key System. It's by Charles Hanel. It's well over 100 years old. Um, some people rumor has it that Bill Gates read the book when he was in college. And after he put the book down, he said, I'm going to put a computer on every person's desk in the world. And he dropped out of college and did it. Yeah. I tell you, I was impressed. I looked up the book and I'm definitely going to get it just out of curiosity, if nothing else. Yeah. Now, do you want to discuss the, uh, the, uh, courier, the female courier that, uh, oh. that bring this mess down? Yeah, yeah. So I had a 99.99% success rate in this business with my drivers and shipments delivered on time, except for the one load that brought me down. And uh, one of my drivers was world champion downhill mountain biker, Missy Giovi. She's won several World Cups back in the day. Um, and she worked for me for a couple of years and she also had her own account down in St. Louis. She was probably doing about a half million a month down there. I was sending her with weed for a couple of years and she had a couple small runs that I had her doing in the Carolinas. Did, did but, you ever uh, ask her why she did that with all her awards and glory she had in her own life? Why you well, I, paid her, I paid her, I paid her good money. I mean, for, for her to drive to California, a five day drive, I'd give her 60,000 cash. That's a good Good pay. More than oh, she was oh, so was She wasn't getting big endorsements and all of that. Yeah, she was out of the game. She had too many accidents. She had some head injuries oh, and mountain biking, okay. so she couldn't right. do it anymore. Yeah. But uh, so I hired her. I go, listen, I have a California run. This I stopped sourcing. Well, I was still sourcing out of California, out of Canada. I've been sourcing out of Canada for a decade, but I started 
my last year in business, I started sourcing out of California. And I said, hey, I got a run that you can run from California to New York, 60,000. You need to just get a trailer, truck. And it was she, I was going to use her as temporary transportation until I had a fruit truck, an 18-wheeler. To I had everything in the works, and but she was temporary transport. Anyway, she, uh, man, she, she misled me. She hired her massage therapist to drive the truck and trailer for 3,000. She subbed it out. Didn't tell me and didn't tell wow. her massage therapist. Didn't even tell her massage therapist there was weed in the trailer. Oh, jeez. Jesus. So this was the, uh, this was the, uh, that was the person. downfall. This is, yeah, that was my downfall, man. The female mountain biker, Missy Giovi, hired this person. That, that woman was speeding in somewhere in Illinois. They pulled her over, searched oh my the vehicle. God searched the vehicle and they put a GPS unit on it, followed it one to one of my properties in upstate New York, Saratoga. You know, you have such a good judge of character. And it's obvious that because you survived so long and uh, Missy was, was lying to you and you always seem to give her the benefit of the doubt. She had a good line of shit. I'll give you that. But uh, you know, you always, you always gave her the edge. Why? Um, maybe he liked her. <laughs> no, no, she wasn't my type, but, but she, the, I never mixed business and pleasure. That was a good thing on my behalf, but, uh, no, she was, I had such a good run that I was getting tired and I wasn't passionate about the business. And when you're not passionate about something, that's where you start making mistakes. And that's where you start making poor choices. And I started making poor choices. I knew in my gut, she was wrong to drive. But I figured one more run until I solidified my new transportation. And uh, I, was ex I wasn't I was even happy, to be honest. I was uh, At this point, everybody wants to be your friend when you're making millions. And I had too many friends, and I didn't know how to build walls around me. Like, now I know how to build walls, right? But I didn't know back then. I was nice to everybody, and that was part of my downfall. Yeah, that's true. I mean... I, I, was, I, I had the best mentors in the world, fortunately, early on. I started... I don't know if you know anything about me. I started when I was 13, and uh, by the time I was like 48, I did $600 million out of the Vatican <laughs> and never wait, gave wait. a dollar up yet. <laughs> they $600 keep, million? They, yeah, they keep telling me that's, that, that's my estimate. I keep telling them, well, where is it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's in that table right behind you. I see that. No, that no, no, no. <laughs> that's only oh. one of many tables. <laughs> you get out of prison and you got your whole life. How old were you when you got out? Uh, 34. Wow. Obviously, you've got your whole life ahead of you. What did you decide to do? I had a couple, I had this app that I was designing that helps you surround yourself with like-minded people, but I tabled that idea. I may re go back to it at a later date, but uh, I wrote this whole book myself. There's no ghostwriter. I took courses. I watched hundreds of hours of YouTube videos. I had mentors, different authors. I spent six figures just in courses and training and I did this whole thing myself. It took me six years and it, some days it would take me three hours to write three sentences. And just, it was a nonstop job because even when I'm driving to the grocery store, I'm still connecting dots because there's over close to 30 or 40 characters in this book. And for this, for me to make this a cohesive piece, it's not about, Hey, look what Eric did. No, this is a story about the reader. This is a story about life. This is a story about love, acceptance, resilience, overcoming adversity, getting whatever you want in life because we were all born to win. You know, that's why you're here. I mean, I've read and, and with my career and everything else. I mean, I read and I write crime books, mostly true crime novels, screenplays, whatever. But this book, your book, was totally different than anything that I've read in this crime genre. You were so totally honest. And, I mean, I've, I've worked face-to-face -face and collaborated with people for their stories who looked at me and lied to my face. And I, and I knew it. A lot of them I turned around and walked away from, you know, you just, you just let it all hang out. That's what makes this book so good. Uh, well, you, you and I discussed this and we'll, we'll discuss it more off camera. I'll, I'll, we'll talk. This book has a future. Uh, and uh, it certainly uh, would make a hell of a film.
But, Are you uh, planning just, on writing another book? Um, I, I'm gonna. I haven't started yet, but yes, I have the concept in my head. But I'm not gonna start just yet. I want to get this thing out the door. I want to get this thing to film or a series first, and then I'll. How, how long? Um, how long has it been published? Uh, like three months. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, so I, I uh, connected him with uh, with Frank. And how 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 are you marketing it? Uh, I really haven't started. To, I put a few posts on social media. I had a couple news reporters do articles on me. I've been on several podcasts, but I haven't really posted. I've only posted a couple. Um, I, I really have to vibe with who I'm being interviewed by. Like some, there were some young kids in their twenties that tried to interview me and I just wasn't jiving with them. And if I'm not jiving with the people that they just don't know, or they well, didn't even read the young. book. That's why they don't even know. What yeah. They're, they're too young. They didn't read the book. So, um, I don't know. Do you have, if you have recommendations off camera, you guys can help me. I, give me, I got give me a, a recommendation on camera <laughs> All right. and he's probably one of the best guys in the world. I did his show again three weeks ago. And I, I think Pat would agree. Every time we do, I do a show, our book spikes. Patrick Bet David. Who? Patrick Bet David. When you and I, uh, Eric, when you and I spoke uh, last week, I, I told you about this guy. Okay. If you were I remember you told me, told me about Frankie, right? Same Frank thing? Wyman is an agent. I oh, he's an agent, right. yeah. No, no I, wouldn't, I wouldn't. <laughs> right now, I... I Franchisi? Maybe you told me about this. Is Franchisi? Oh, no. no, no you no, want no. to go there. Michael? No. This is... Patrick Bet David is a powerhouse. Well, I'll and, tell you how powerful he is. I was on it, what, three weeks ago? The last time? I don't know. It's, you've been on a few times, yeah. but... 18 million views. Million. Yeah. 18 million. million. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. No, was, I'd love to get on there. Well, that, yeah, that, we, I mean, that this, if you don't mind... This is something he would love. I, I mean, I, I have a history with this guy. It's amazing. He found out about me and came here. He was in Dallas with a camera crew, and he was just starting to get into podcast business a little over three years ago. He's a multi-multi-millionaire based on buying up small insurance companies and they gave him the power to buy big blocks of insurance for cheaper money, and he franchised that. I mean, the guys. I mean, you look him up; he's an amazing guy, and he's got a, a very, genuine very, guy, and uh, just a sweetheart. But this kind of a story, he loves. Got an extremely popular podcast. He's like the uh, the, the Oprah Winfrey of of of, of podcasting. He's up there with Joe Rogan. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, we'll get you on there. I mean, the franchisees and, and the Sammy the Bull stuff, that's, you don't need that genre. It's all bullshit, to be honest with all you. Right. With what I'm you did, I mean, I don't even know you, but it's genius. I, I love a crime. I live my life in crime. All my life in crime. I've done three murders, never sat in a jail, never, I leave. I've gotten 23 federal indictments, beat them all. So... I like the way you think, because that's the way I thought. But I had people grooming me, major people. Maya Lansky, Frank Costello, Tony Accardo, the mob people of the world. You have his address. I'm going to send you our book. It's like a Bible that you should have read, but you already knew it. (laughs) (laughs) But that's why uh, our book is like three years now a bestseller. And we have two options on films, but the, the, we will. I mean, hearing you speak and knowing who you are, just take your time, man. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to meet you in Saratoga too. Maybe August fifth, Friday. Right. So, August what do I 5th? need? To, what do I need to do to get over in there? Do you got something for me? A ticket, or I buy something somewhere? I'll, I'll give me a ticket. Meet me. You'll know, be my guest. All right. Cool. No. Looking How many people? It. Can and, after the show, which is about to come to a close, uh, you and I will talk, Eric, sometime this week because I, I, I gave you some leads. I want to hear how you did. But uh, we are impressed, and we will help you. I mean, no, we'll help we, start- you. I mean, we don't want anything. We don't, no, I mean, I'm talking for myself. Pat don't need anything. So don't, don't let me yeah, right. you. <laughs> when we started this podcast, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And uh, I, I, I wish we had people to 
help us, like we're about to help you because this is a rough road to travel. There are over 950,000 podcasts out there and very few become successful. And people like Patrick Bet David, he's gold. You get on his show and uh, you're going to see, you're going to start there. I'll make sure uh, too. He'll fly you down. He picks up all the checks. He does everything. Where's he located? He now went to Florida. He just built a big mansion down there. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love. I'd love to go down there. I'll go down there next week. Just let me know. Well, okay. We'll we'll, uh, we'll talk again. I'll talk to him. And uh, how? Where is your book available? Amazon. Amazon's the best. It's it's everywhere, but Amazon's the best. Okay. Yeah. I want. Okay, I, want to, I want him to get the book and let him get it in through enthralled with you first. He's I a very that. smart man. And, okay, uh, obviously, uh, we know what the name of the book is. He's sitting in front of it, but here's the book itself. I love it. Pressure. Yeah. Pressure. Yeah, pressure. It's right behind me, too. I know. I see here. it all, man. Yeah, I got pressure. It. the actual book. Anyway, like I said, uh, after being in the writing business for as long as I have, uh, not much impresses me anymore. All right. So you, that's great to well, hear. That's great to hear. You like, Give me a couple key points. What are some things that really makes this book stand out? Your honesty. That's the main thing. I mean, this is a this is a true crime genre, and but basically the, those books are all the same. It's I didn't even read the book. Just what you got away with. That's how it's, I look. It, it, John, John, yeah, yeah, that's it, that, that's, that's what my. Like, yeah, I was told. I was that I was told by some heavy hitters that what's very unique is nobody gets to that level for that long has a ten year run without being on the radar of the feds. Oh no, believe that, I had a guy that, that was after me, for almost his whole career, and when he got out of the feds, I sent him a gold Rolex with the monogram on the back because I knew nobody else was going to give him one. And he went crazy <laughs> that I knew his home address in Salt Lake City because you know you can't get their addresses. Yeah. No, but I mean, no, I mean, I've been around. I mean, I'm not bragging, but I, I did a lot, a lot of money early on. I had a million dollars by the time I was 18. Never gave it up to nobody, and I don't even know what I have now. But I mean, I do know, but nobody else gonna know. But the thing <clears throat> is, I love business. Right now, I have six businesses in 73 countries. But it's all because of my larceny, the way I think. And the way you think, what you did, I, that's ingenious. Ingenious. Okay, but but to, to, to answer the question of what attracts publishers, movie people, people that are going to help you, is the honesty in your writing. First of all, it's amazing that this is the first thing you ever wrote. But it's a unique story. It, it, well, it's, it's always it's, the it's, story. It's, I don't care how it's written. A lot of... Johnny, there's a lot of unique stories out there. How you tell them is what sells. That's and, I made 46 motion pictures. What we call what's in the script is what's going to make the movie. He's got it. It's well, you're yeah, saying yeah. the same thing. I mean, you know, it just uh, I, you know, to answer your question, there is only one answer to that question, and that's the honesty in the book. You know, it's fascinating that you were uh, uh, you were under the. The, the Fed's radar, and that's part of the story. That's the thrill of the story. But people want to read about somebody who can be like themselves. The people Vulnerable. The people who have the same problems I do, uh, that go through the same thoughts that I have. And you did that in a true crime book, and I've never seen that before. Yeah, and I urge, I urge our listeners to get this book. Uh, it's I don't put books. This is the first book I've ever pushed, I think. Uh, on, yeah. on the show to this extent anyway uh, yeah this, and, go ahead sorry this, this you you nailed it right there is this is there's a crime story threaded throughout but this is a story about love and acceptance and trying to fit in with the people around you at the end of the day nobody wants to be alone and they want to fit in we want to be loved recognized and know that we're going to have food and shelter and that's what everybody's running around for right now everything else is just noise so that's what this really is about love and acceptance I couldn't have said it better myself. You should have been a writer. Hold it. You are a writer. No, no, Thank I, Eric, no but Eric, should've... what a pleasure meeting you. And uh, I'm, and Pat knows. I don't. I don't tell anybody. I don't say I'm going to do anything for anybody. I really want to do it. But I think you are so interesting, and what you have accomplished, you're, you're a unique man. And there's very when you could say you're unique in the population of this world. There's only a, a handful. 
Well, thank you, Eric. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, uh, it's it, it's it's been a fascinating forty minutes. If it's okay, I I will call you tomorrow. Is that good? Thank you, Patrick. That's perfect. Call me anytime tomorrow. And um, Gianni, thank you for having me on. And somehow let's no, Patrick will patch 5th, me and do August fifth. Yeah, write it down. This Friday night. And even Saturday, if you want to come with me to the track, I, I shot Seabiscuit up there. That's why I fell in love with it. Okay. I used all the classic tracks when I made that movie, but then I love I love that whole that whole area up there. I mean, it's like going back into time. Everybody minds their own business. It's it's really interesting. I have big yeah, business cool. up there too. I own I'm part looking. of Saratoga National Golf Course. I got th- oh, okay. I got thirty eight acres that I'm building homes up there with, with my youngest son. Okay. But uh, no, I want to just sit and talk to you. And hundred uh, percent, yeah, one hundred percent. I'm going to see you August fifth. So it's just a matter of we'll swap phone numbers off here. Uh, Patrick yeah. will get me your phone number. We'll make it happen. Yeah, please. Oh. And you'll be my guest. You get up there early, late afternoon. Oh, you're there. I'm coming up that morning. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'll be here. I'm All right, please. All right, thank you. Thank Eric, you, guys. Thank you Thanks. Congratulations thank you on the show. Pleasure, guys. We'll talk it's soon. Been a pleasure, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. All right, please. Thank you. Good night. What a story, huh, Pat? I told you. I tell you, that's not. Uh, uh, oh, it's a synopsis. What? It's a synopsis. It's Forty a minutes of a, but the synopsis of this guy's life, what he it's went through. It's not even a book portion of what's in that book. I I can't recommend it enough. You know, you're going to see anybody who reads this book. You know what we should do? We should have took a commercial break. Come back from the mailbag. Right now. Well, okay. But, but just let me tell you, anybody who reads this book is going to find some of them in it, guaranteed. Good. Anyway, okay, go ahead. Yeah, make a note for you what time we're doing this commercial break and coming back. I got it. Okay. We're going to go to the commercial for a minute. We're going to make some money. Don't go anywhere. You know we know where you live. I'm really excited to announce Pala Casino Spa and Resorts in California. The phone number for reservations is 760-510-5100. I'll be there one night, October 1st, a Saturday night. Come and catch the show. It's an evening you can't refuse. And I guarantee you, when you leave, you will be amazed at what you're going to see. Remember... Pala Casino and Spa and Resorts, 760-510-5100, October 1st. Today's show is being sponsored by Cordelione Fine Italian Food Products. This sponsor really means a lot to me. Cordelione Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather films and created a line of food products that include pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar from Modena, Italy, Genco Extra Virgin Olive Oil from Sicily. They created delicious pasta sauces, marinade, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my favorite, Clemenza's meat sauce. You will be amazed. You will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. CorleoneFineItalian.com. That's CorleoneFineItalian.com. All right, we're back with the mailbag. This is Pat and I's favorite part of the show because we get to know what you're thinking, what you want us to think, and what you want us to do as a show, hopefully. And keep those cards and letters coming. We need And our listeners are probably wondering if we are actually thinking yes we can still think no problem <laughs> I, I i can't speak for tomorrow but we're doing okay for today yeah all right a couple of weeks ago i uh i related a story about uh uh me being interviewed by a federal agency for a job after i retired from the nypd and it wasn't a typical interview where they ask you about your life what you're looking for you talk salaries no they ask you hypothetical questions and the question that they asked me was, and I said I would get back with the answer. Well, tonight's the answer. Here's the question for those of you who uh, didn't listen to the show. Uh, you're a pilot on a commercial airliner with passengers. You're flying from, let's say, Seattle to Dallas, Texas. And when you're up in the air at 30,000 feet, 
you get a call from the tower saying we just got word that there is a pressure bomb on your plane. And if you descend to less than 4,000 feet, the plane is going to blow up. Well, the pilot gave this some thought and he landed the plane successfully. Now, the question to me was, how did he do it? And here's a hint. And the hint was The Hound of the Baskervilles, which was a Sherlock Holmes book written in 1892. So I am sitting there staring at these people. I'm shaking and sweating. I don't know what to say, but they didn't want an answer then. They said that they would call me, somebody would call me tomorrow for an answer and go to it. So I wanted the job. I'd never wound up getting it because I didn't take it. I was talked out of it. But uh, the answer is one of the characters, well, the family character, one of the families in the Hound of the Baskervilles, it's a family uh, by the surname of Stapleton. And I, I perused, I, I must have read this book a dozen times, and I'm not exaggerating. I know it backwards and frontwards. I've seen all the movies. It's been done numerous times on film. And I, I just figured Stapleton has something to do with it. And it hit me. Stapleton Airport in Denver is at 5,300 feet elevation. Aha. Uh-huh. And they landed the plane in Stapleton Airport. And I got it. And I was just wondering if anybody else did. Be honest now. That's okay, wild. So, uh, uh, anyway. I never thought of that. Hello. If, if, if I hadn't read that book, I would have had to start reading it 24 hours. And <laughs> I think they had to do something with a name of something. And it just hit me, Stapleton. I just remembered that uh, that's the name of the airport in Denver. I just knew it. And I've been in that oh. airport you know, how many times? Because my brother-in-law, Pat Bowler. We used to land there, there all the time. Absolutely. That's funny. Okay. So anybody cares? The only thing I knew about altitude there, you're not going to believe this one. Go ahead. It takes longer to boil pasta at high altitudes. <laughs> right. I tell you, I went there to see uh, my oldest son, Alex, uh, lived there for, for a couple of years. He was in the, uh, another one, he's in the marijuana business. He was in the legal marijuana business. Uh, I had problems there like the first three or four days, headaches. Oh, yeah. Breathing. You're not used to it, yeah. No, mile you're, high. You're, you're, That's you're, why they call it mile high. <laughs> you're almost at 6,000 feet. Yep. You know, it doesn't, but then, you know, you acclimate to it. Of course. But uh, it, it takes a little while. And for some people, particularly people that are out of shape, they never acclimate to it. Yeah. And it, you don't find too many out of shape people in Denver. And I'm serious. Yeah. Everybody's a health nut. Okay. First question from James. Gianni, this must be you. Uh, I was reading about the maze department store swindle and Huey McIntosh's name came up as someone who helped uh, Persico extort the thieves. Did you know Huey? No. Do you know who he was? Nope. Huey McIntosh was an associate. He was a bookie uh, that dealt a lot with the Westies. But I I didn't I didn't know the story either. Oh, on, on another note, do you have any Don Rickles stories to share? Oh, Don Rickles, I got so well, you many. You Rickles. So stories. I was with him. I mean, Don and I came so, I mean, so friendly. And I knew Don before he married his wife, Barbara. And his wife, Barbara, was the secretary to a close friend of mine, Jack Gelardi, who happened to be the vice president of ICM. And that's how he met her, because he started representing her. And, she, and they had two beautiful kids now, and he's passed, obviously. But... Uh, Don and I have been friends forever, but the things that he got away with, with Sinatra loved him. And that Sinatra really made his career. Him and Johnny Carson, because you could see how many shows they did together. But Don Rickles, I mean, Don I'm at my club in State Street, I used to get up and sing in my club. Like most Italians think they could sing, make love, and cook. I do two out of three. So, but one of them wasn't singing. <laughs> So he'd come in, and he made the mistake, because Sinatra was sitting there, and he was talking to Sinatra while I was singing. I came back to the table, and Sinatra said, Don really loves the way you sing. I said, really, Don? He said, yeah, man, you're the best. You, you could go big. You could really go big. So with that, Sinatra is a, a great practical joker. He asked for a phone, because we had phone jacks at every table. This is in the 80s. And... He asked for a phone. I don't even know who he's talking to. 
and he gives the number to, to my girl to put it in the phone. And he's talking to the guy. So I'm here with Don Rickles at Johnny's place at State Street. And Don loves the singer. I want him to be Johnny's opening act for the next year. So he must have said, okay, what do you want to pay him? He just give, give him like, you know, 1000 2000 a week. Don Rickles is paying $500 a week. He, he made it be if you did the show with him, you could become a star. He almost fell off the chair. But I did do I did it. I mean, maybe Sinatra gave him the money. I had more fun with this guy. I could do a, 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 an hour on Don Rickles' stories. How long did you open for him? What? How long did you open? For him? one year. One year. Every, every engagement. I did 30 minutes as the opening act. But that's how I met Sinatra. I met so many people because of Don Rickles. Well, I can go okay. on. And we should do a show about it on John Rickles one night. There you go. Uh, okay, Patrick and Gianni, thank you for doing the show on the early part of Patrick's career in the NYPD. That was an excellent show. I'd like to hear a part two of how you became a detective and your experiences with that life. Uh, life in the NYPD in the 1980s, cases you worked, uh, how to crop tough cases. And if I may ask, what was your most terrifying incident on the NYPD? Well, you might think it was a blazing shootout or a chase across rooftops, but it was an actual, actually it was a bodyguard job from uh, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was going to receive an award in the Apollo Theater. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it's uh, it's an iconic theater in Harlem, 125th Street. And uh, uh, the, the tactical patrol force, of which I belong to, was uh, charged with guarding the guy. I mean, he was at the height of his career. When you walk into the Apollo Theater, have you ever been there, Johnny? Yeah, numerous okay. times. Okay, when you walk in, you walk in to like a hallway that's, that's you're not in the theater yet. Yeah. Uh, you, you walk through the theater doors and you walk down a hallway that's maybe 30 or 40 feet. Then there's the actual doors to the theater and you walk in and, and you go. So uh, he was going to, he, he made his entrance, he gets out of the limousine and whoever the bosses were told you should, there was thousands of people on 125th just to see uh, Ali. And he was told do not walk Stop. in the main entrance because there's no escape. You're, you're, you're trapped in that hallway. You can come out that way because we won't tell them when you're coming out. Right. And we can have barriers up. Anyway, he decides, no, he, he wants to be one with his fans. And I was all the way down that like outdoor hallway before you get into the main entrance. And the crowd went over the barriers and rushed into that enclosed space. And there's no room. It's just the room where you came in. There's How many no, were you? Not just you by yourself. Well, in that on that particular post, there was probably ten of us. Oh, that's right. I think. Uh, yeah. Altogether, there was probably thirty or forty. Uh, but anyway, the crowd pushed us against the door. Now, the doors on, on any any building open out because it's a fire hazard to open in. Right, right. We could not open the door to escape, and they crushed me. And I was the only one. They crushed me to the point where I thought I was going to die. Wow. I could not. Couldn't breathe. I actually fainted from lack of oxygen, and, and I thought at that moment I'm dead. They're I mean, crush. only and this was this was New York in the early '80s. I figured I'm gonna go with a bullet in the head. Someone's gonna run me over or beat me to death with a bat. No, I'm gonna die because Muhammad Ali didn't want to take the rear entrance. But wow. anyway, we were rescued, obviously. But to answer your question, that was the most fearful time, and to this day, I'm afraid of crowds. Wow. I always I always look for an out. If, if I'm around a crowd. So I know there's an escape route for me. Right, 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 right. And it was frightening. Uh, do we have time for more? I don't think so. Okay, yeah, we can save some. Yeah, we, we, we went kind of long with this one. Oh, uh, great. So we'll, we'll save the question next week. Well, Pat and I both want to th thank you for your loyalty. Keep tuning in. We got some great plans coming up right after Labor Day weekend. You're going to be able to look at us. We're going live on camera. I wonder how many fans we're going to lose. <laughs> anyway, just, just a thought. No, but we're, we're going to expand our market, and uh, we want you to be the first to know about it. It's going to be the first Wednesday after Labor Day. And we got going some on exciting guests, and you're going to love it. And keep the cards and letters coming, and we'll see you next week. Have a good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, Gianni.
If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but Thank just you call for tuning me. in to the Hollywood call Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself, Megan Horan, with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com, which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and on Facebook, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you'd like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your messages. Good night. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. I'll be around.